Really, Jake, the only thing on show today, Jake, is that mustache. I mean, that deserves a round of applause in and of itself. We're glad to have that. Yeah. You worked, what, like two whole months on that, I think? Months. Yeah, so, I mean, that's good stuff. Year 2022. 2022, there you go. Go eat another donut, Jake. It's good to have you. Well, again, like you said, my name is Daniel. I serve here as our executive pastor. It's my privilege uh, to speak today on this final Sunday of the year. We hope that you had an incredible Christmas uh, yesterday. It was an incredible time to celebrate together on Christmas Eve, seeing uh, so many faces in this room. And uh, we know many faces again online as well. And we hope that the Christmas season uh, was a rich one. And we are glad that you're here together uh, on this last Sunday of December. Again, all of our generations, uh, really three-year-old on up, as it's kind of a family Sunday, we are glad that you're worshiping with us together today. I love a good coming-of-age story. Do you? Love a good uh, coming-of-age story. There, there's just something about that type of narrative that kind of draws people in. We watch the main character grow from childhood, maybe through adolescence, and all the way through adulthood, kind of weighing in different uh, decisions that they make, different tensions that they feel, different conflicts that they may, might be in the midst of. In, in literature, I'm referring to the type of story uh, such stories as really like uh, Great Expectations, maybe a, 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 a book you had to read in, in uh, sometime in high school or, or uh, college, or, or maybe To Kill a Mockingbird, kind of another coming-of-age story. Uh, also in musical theater, uh, kind of a, maybe a genre that I'm, I'm more connected to, Dear Evan Hansen tells a little bit of that story, again, of uh, a coming-of-age story as a, a young character kind of progresses through some tensions in life. Or perhaps in film, we see the Lion King, young Simba, as a, a little, um, I guess, lion cub growing up into his own. Or maybe Dead Poet Society comes to mind. These are all uh, coming-of-age stories. But perhaps one of my favorite types in this genre is a TV show called The Wonder Years. Anyone enjoy watching The Wonder Years? There's yeah, there, there's a new kind of reboot going on right now, which I also enjoy. But I'm specifically thinking of the sitcom that ran from 1988 to 1993. We have the Arnold family. Uh, the, the story is really told from Kevin's perspective here. Here's young Kevin. He's the youngest in the family. We have uh, uh, Jack and Norma and the siblings. Uh, Wayne, oh man, he was pesky. And Karen, I happen to live in a household with two older siblings, a brother and a sister. And we can't forget about Kevin's friends in the story. They're certainly part of that. We have Paul Pfeiffer, the uh, constant companion, the best friend always next to him. And then, of course, we have the crush, Winnie Cooper. Uh, I happen to know her name very well because I also had a crush on Winnie Cooper uh, while I was watching The Wonder Years. And uh, this story kind of tells the perspective of Kevin, really as an adult, looking back on his life, as he progressed from ages 12 to 17, kind of in the late 1960s and 1970s in America. There's just something about a coming-of-age story that draws us in. And today, we have the pleasure 
of having multiple generations represented here in the room. This being the, the Sunday after Christmas, we've gathered in one service, both here and online with all ages, all the way from three all the way up. In fact, some of you uh, didn't realize there were other people in this congregation besides the other hour that you typically worship in, right? So you walked in and someone was sitting where you normally sit and they're part of our church too. So make sure you introduce yourself to them uh, before you leave. And, and you're looking around, you may see some kids that you haven't met before. But this is our church. This is our kind of final Sunday. This is a multi-generational service, if I had to say so. And I think I am especially excited because today's text is a small portion of text that comes just after the Christmas narrative in Luke 2. It's also in Luke chapter 2. And this is really the small section, all we know in Scripture, of Jesus's adolescence and what would have otherwise been a pretty silent 30 years of his story. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 2 verse 41. Maybe you got that new device that Santa gave you yesterday and so you pull that out. Or if you want a, a physical Bible, you might remember what those were like. Uh, there's some under the seats or in front of you in the seats. And so kids, I'd encourage you to grab one of those too, follow along. In fact, if you have one of those paper Bibles, this will be on page 1000. 28. Again, that's 1028, and so you can follow along with your parents. Uh, but as you're going there, we have been looking at this concept of the greatest story ever told. And we focused in on Jesus' life and the very di various different aspects of storytelling. And today, uh, I've titled this story The Epilogue. Because it's right after that Christmas narrative. We probably, many of us, read part of Luke chapter 2, if not on Christmas Eve, maybe in our houses yesterday. But this also appears in Luke chapter 2. It's the only gospel account that records anything about Jesus' boyhood. And I think it's so interesting. And I think especially today, as we have all ages represented in this room and online, I'd like to focus a, a little bit on this passage again. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Listen as I read. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this story in this day with 12-year-olds uh, gathered with us in worship all the way up and down the generational lines and we pray that this little piece of Jesus' story as a boy in the temple will resonate with us today. God, allow your spirit to move and convict and lead as I uh, attempt to share your word. May it be honoring to you, and may it bring us into a greater understanding and love and knowledge of you and your love for us. It's in your son's name that we pray. 
Amen. All right, so you're going to want to keep that passage open because I'm going to kind of walk back through that in various different aspects. And this first part I'm going to talk about is simply the Passover festival, what we see them doing in that story. Uh, This coming-of-age story begins by telling us that Jesus and his family were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of the Passover. This would have been one of three different kind of festivals that a good Jewish family would have been responsible for participating in. And uh, as time went on and more people moved away from Jerusalem, it really became the expectation that they would only travel back to Jerusalem for one of those. So Jesus lived outside of the city of Jerusalem. He lived in Nazareth, which was about a three days journey on foot. And so they would have traveled back for this on an annual basis. And the festival itself would have lasted for about eight days, but after about three days, it was likely that they would have returned home. That was kind of the most important part, the first three days there. And after all, you can think of leaving your household, the, the, the stress that that would have been, the difficulty that would have been, and the travel itself. And so oftentimes, maybe after that three days, uh, these families would return home. But this text tells us a few things about that aspect and the fact that we see his parents, both of his parents, doing this not just once, but regularly. It was their custom. As a female, Mary was actually not really expected to go. She didn't have to go. It wasn't really understood that she would go. But her presence alone tells this that Jesus' family is committed to those Jewish customs. I imagine the experience was probably pretty impressive for Jesus. The city would have expanded to over 200,000 people in those days. Local residents opening up their homes, allowing people to come and sleep for whatever the amount of days that they would stay there. And I'm sure if you think about it, this annual experience that Jesus would have been a part of year after year probably became a pretty big deal. In fact, uh, it would probably have been maybe a highlight even of Jesus's year. In, in fact, we, we could even kind of infer that he liked it so much that when all the family was up to leave and go back home, Jesus actually stayed there in Jerusalem in what I like to call his home alone moment. How many have watched in this room, online as well, how many have watched Home Alone? Okay, the rest of you that aren't raising your hands, either hate raising your hands in questions like these, or you're lying, because I assume nearly everyone has seen this movie at some point. Uh, This has become really almost a classic uh, for those who watched it as a kid, like I have. Now, my kids enjoy watching this movie nearly every year. It's the 1990 story. Yes, it's 31 years old, if that wants to date you a little bit. It's a 31-year-old story from 1990 where Kevin McAllister has so many iconic moments. This is one of those pictured there. Uh, but you, you remember the story, right? The, the family was going to travel uh, over the Christmas holiday, and they had uh, set their alarms, but the ice storm had made the power go out, and therefore they wake up last minute and frantically trying to, to grab their flight, and they all pile in the car, but Kevin is mistook for one of the neighbor kids, and they get to the airport, and everyone's rushing through the airport, and finally they get on the plane. Kids, by the way, are in coach. Parents are in first class. I'm not really sure how that happens, but I think It's a wonderful idea. And mom and dad are sitting there, and she's thinking, I I forgot something. They're going through all the different things. Did we we do this? Did we do this? Oh, it's the garage door. We didn't close the garage door. No, no, it's something else. And in that moment, suddenly she realizes she has forgot Kevin. What does she do? Kids, you know it. What does she do? She yells out, Kevin, right? And then the story ensues in their home alone moment. 
I believe a little bit this might have been like Mary and Joseph's home alone moment. We see this in the text, Luke chapter 2, verse 43 and following. The, the festival's over, and the parents didn't realize that Jesus has been left behind. Uh, this would have been a three-day journey back home, and somewhere near the end of their first day, they realize it. He's gone. Now, parents, before you get all judgmental on Mary and Joseph, this isn't, hey, let's hop in the minivan and go for a ride. We're going, you know, to Grandma's house, and we're going to get Slurpees on the way in that corner. No, it's not like this at all. They would have traveled in large caravans, family and friends together. It was safer for them to do that. And similarly, it was also custom for females and males to kind of uh, travel in separate groups as they walked along. So you could imagine, especially a 12-year-old boy kind of becoming into his own, there might have been an assumption that, you know, he was with her and... He was with him, and I could imagine they're, they're setting up camp at the end of that first day, and, you know, Mary walks over to Joseph. Well, how did Jesus do? I don't know. You, you tell me. How, how did he do? He was with you. No, no, he wasn't. He was with you. No, he, he was with you. And suddenly they realize he's nowhere to be found. They frantically uh, search for him. Uh, regardless of how they realized he was gone, he wasn't there. The text conveys that they were frantically looking around, and uh, meanwhile, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, hanging in the temple, eager just to learn from the religious leaders about his Jewish faith. Annas would have been the high priest at this time, and ironically, he was the same high priest we read about at the end of Jesus' life when he is put on trial. Now, this 12-year-old boy would not have really threatened them with his questions. He, he was just a young boy after all. And I, my guess is they kind of patted him on the head and said, oh, that's, that's nice. You have some great questions or you want to challenge us. But later we know that some of Jesus' ways would, in fact, challenge these religious leaders. Now, we, we can't know for certain. But I think it might be fair to assume that some of the leaders that Jesus was listening to, sitting at their feet, asking questions, responding, could have been some of the leaders that turned on him later in life, that led to his persecution, his crucifixion, ultimately his death. The original text conveys that their amazement with his understanding was a repeated, a continual experience. It wasn't just once, but time after time after time. They were surprised with how he understood these things. Jesus really seemed to understand at a much deeper level than most. And so that leads us to mom's confrontation in chapter 2, verse 48. We get that universal experience that, let's be, let's be frank, kids, you, you, you know what this is like. We've all faced this at some point. Uh, when, when there's a reckoning that needs to happen, maybe mom simply crosses her arms and you know you're in for it. Or, or maybe she raises her voice or maybe she uses your whole name, your, your middle name even. Or maybe she doesn't say anything at all. Maybe she just gives you the look. Yeah, the look. You know, like you're in for it. And I can imagine Mary uh, finding Jesus in the temple, what that might have felt like for Jesus, for Mary. I think it's interesting that this next uh, confrontation really is kind of led out by Mary, not Joseph, but Mary is the one who's recorded speaking here. And in some ways, this might be a universal trait because I would almost maybe uh, imagine that Mary was a little more worried than Joseph in this moment. It's a common trait. I think mothers are wired to care more maybe for the nurturing and safety of their ch children than dads. 
I know in my own coming of age story, I had a, a moment when I was 17. I was a senior in high school. I grew up here in Indianapolis. I was going to go to college nine hours away, and I thought it would be a great idea for me and two of my buddies to hop in my car, uh, 1987 Mercury Cougar, by the way, and haul all the way to Joplin, Missouri, nine hours. After all, I was going to go to college there later, and so I wanted to go. They were having a conference, a convention. I thought, man, this will be a great way. We'll call it a college visit, and we'll drive, you know, the nine hours, stay a couple nights, and drive back. And I, I was wise enough at the time to, to ask my dad what he thought of the scenario before asking my mom. And my dad, by the way, my, my dad's birthday would have been today, December 26th. This is a special day for my family. But my dad, in his wisdom, said, Daniel, this is how we're going to do this. You're going to walk in, and you talk to your mom and I, and you're going to tell us. You're going to tell us that you're going to go on this trip. Like, tell us as in you and mom? Yeah, you're going to tell us. That you're, going, you're not going to ask for permission. You're going to tell us, and I'll have your back. I thought, oh, okay. We'll try, try this out. So I, I ran the play. I, I knew the playbook. I ran it, and I said, Mom, Dad, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go on this trip. And immediately my mom, absolutely not. What are you thinking? And she looks to my dad for support, and it wasn't there. And in fact, he said, well, honey, let's, you know, 17, he's going to go to college next year. Why don't we? Absolutely not. I don't know what other words were exchanged in that debate. All I know is I went on the trip, and uh, somewhere along the line, my dad convinced my mom to kind of let go of some of that, because I think mothers were wired that way, and I think even Jesus' story here, that, that Mary records this confrontation with Jesus, is evidence, uh, perhaps, of that. Luke records that they were astonished. That original word packed with so much more meaning than that English word that we read there. It, it conveys intensity, and elsewhere it's translated in the New Testament that they were struck with a blow. This was a big deal for Mary and Joseph, particularly for Mary. And Mary uh, ropes Joseph into the conversation. I'm not sure if you saw that. She says, uh, your father and I, we have been anxiously searching for you. Now, I'm, I'm sure Joseph was worried. I'm sure he was also searching. But Mary records this, that we were anxiously searching for you. And that word specifically, anxiously, refers to agony, grief, misery. Parents, have you, have you ever had that experience? You lost a kid maybe in a supermarket or at a theme park. I, I thought about asking for stories from kids today, but I, I didn't want to put any parents on the spot. But the panic that rises up in you is almost something that you can't even describe. And then once you're reunited with your child, you, you feel both anger and relief. You're, you're frustrated, but you love them so much, and you're so glad to be reunited with them. I think that's exactly how Mary felt in that moment. And in her confrontation with Jesus, she really accuses Jesus of betraying them as parents. She felt this deeply. And so with the rest of the text, we see both Jesus' response and the result. Beginning in verse 49, these are actually the first words recorded of Jesus. I don't know if you kind of put that together earlier, but this is the first words we see the young Savior speak. He simply responds in what you might hear moms as a little bit of a smart aleck response why were you searching for me? Excuse me? <laughs> he, he says, why were you searching for me? Uh, then he asks another question that almost seems to kind of uh, question Mary and Joseph's intelligence. He says, 
didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? In that moment, it was as if Jesus was saying, I assumed that you would know if I I wasn't with you, I would be in the temple. In that moment, he establishes really the complexity between, between being both the son of God and a son in the family of Joseph. This same complexity we've wrestled with this whole Christmas season. The fact that the God of the universe comes to live as a common man. Emmanuel, God with us, he is putting both of those on display at the same time. Mary saying, your father and I, Jesus hears father in a different context. No, no, I'm, I belong to Heavenly Father. Luke notes that they had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> they absolutely didn't understand it, but that didn't keep Jesus from being obedient. Luke records that he returned to Nazareth with them. Them, I think, probably referring, again, to, to Joseph and Mary. Also interesting note, this is the last we hear of Joseph. We see him in the birth narrative, and here we are in the end of Luke chapter 2. This is the final evidence that Joseph is involved in Jesus' life. We don't really know what happens if he died an untimely death, or uh, we just don't know. But this is the last evidence of Joseph in the narrative. I also think it's interesting to note that, that, uh, that Jesus, though, compels in this response, and Mary is recorded as storing all these things in her heart. We know that Mary has continued through Jesus' story and most likely was interviewed by Luke even for this gospel that he wrote. But did you catch that? How Jesus, even though his parents didn't understand, he followed, he obeyed. Jesus was fully obedient to his parents. In his perfect humility, he submitted to his imperfect parents. In Jesus' perfect humility, he submitted to his imperfect parents. Well, the section closes by recording that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, the word man, they're referring to all of mankind, young and old, women and man, anthropos, all human beings. So, This little text, this little portion of scripture tells us what we know about Jesus' boyhood experience. That's all we have. But what can we do with this? Well, I think there's uh, some great ways to apply this passage to our lives. And I think, uh, parents, you have something to hear. Children in the room, I think you have something to hear. Also, as a church, I think we have something to hear. So let me offer some points of application here. First of all, to parents. Sometimes your children's choices may not make sense. Mary and Joseph did not understand this. They didn't understand what was going on at all. And Stan even kind of referred to this last Sunday a little bit. I remember being nervous even to tell my parents that I felt God nudging me into pursuing a a career in ministry. I I didn't know if they would understand or agree. Now, the truth is my parents were very supportive, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But I know many friends that didn't have their support of their parents when they chose maybe some things that they didn't understand. That confusing decision that you may be hearing as a parent, it may not be a desire to work in ministry or a career decision. It may be something completely different, but you're sitting there going, I have no, no idea why they're wanting to do this. Absolutely none. And sometimes I think it's important for us to realize that we don't always see God's plan in the midst of it. And I encourage you to pray for wisdom and discernment and realize that sometimes, oftentimes, God's will is revealed when we're 
kind of through that season, or maybe even past it, and you see how God continued to work in those situations. So parents, realize that as your children grow and make decisions, particularly as they become older in adolescence, you may need to let go, because they may be, in fact, following God's design and his path for them. All right, secondly, children in the room, listen up, and I refer this all the way maybe from, uh, you know, the youngest in here all the way through teenage years. There's a couple things I think that are very blatant for us. Number one, you are not above thinking theologically. Uh, Jesus was 12 in this passage, and you are not above thinking theologically. Sometimes I think as adults, we think, oh, the kids won't understand that, or just put them in a room and give them a, you know, pizza party. That is not the case here at Venture. We believe and we strongly support all of our next-gen ministries from birth all the way through uh, college age, and we believe that those theological thoughts and thinking and attitudes are something that can be developed even at a young age. And maybe you're sitting there going, I don't even know what theologically means. That's okay, let me break it down for you. That means simply just, what do you think about God and what his Bible says to you? You are never too young to have some of those questions. And specifically, if you're a student uh, here today in grades 7 through 12, I would urge you, if you're not plugged in on Sunday nights to our Momentum, our kind of uh, student ministry event on a weekly basis, start. January 9th, we're back in session. And every uh, single time they meet, uh, oftentimes when they meet, they, they split up into small groups by, by gender and by grade. And there are people there eager to pour into your kids, to ask them questions, to, to share with them, to mentor them in a way that we see Jesus doing with the temple leaders. You are never too young to grow in your faith. Number two, God may be calling you right now to something great. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Maybe you're 10, maybe you're 12 like Jesus, maybe you're 18, but God may be calling you today to something great in his kingdom, we see that Jesus knew that. And some of you may not feel that nudge, but you may be beginning to see like what I'm good at and what, how God's blessed me and the, 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 the talents he's given you. Those are all gifts from God. And he may be calling you, I would even say he is calling you to use those in a mighty way in his kingdom. So don't discount that. And then finally, number three, uh, children. Uh, your parents, they're imperfect. And the kids go, yep, yep, know that. Yep, they're absolutely imperfect. Your parents are imperfect. But listen, you should still respect and obey them. Can you imagine what it would have been like to, to be in charge of raising Jesus? Like, you had Jesus in your care, and you left him. I, I can't imagine what Mary Joseph felt in that moment. But even Jesus respected and obeyed his parents, even when they didn't fully understand what he was doing. By the way, I guarantee you that your parents often feel like they don't know what they're doing because parenting's hard. Am I right, parents? Like sometimes we don't know what we're doing. You should respect your parents. You should obey your parents. We see that in the text. We see that even from the Son of God. All right, finally, the church. I think we see as a church uh, two great ways to apply this passage. The first of all, first off is this. It's okay to feel tension between your earthly family and your spiritual family. Jesus drew that distinction. He knew he was in the family of Joseph, but he was also in the family of God. And listen, some of you felt this deeply yesterday. 
You gathered with your family, and, and you remember all of the good things that was Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and all the traditions and all the, the things that made you who you are today, and you're thankful for those. And they may have been good and awesome and wholesome, but maybe over the course of your life as an adult, you have become closer to the church and Jesus, and you're following a faith that the rest of your family doesn't subscribe to, doesn't believe in. And you feel that tension between your earthly family and your spiritual family, and maybe you even hate it. You're sitting here going, this today feels so much different than yesterday, and I wish those two were the same. But I think even Jesus felt that tension. And I just want to say, I think it's okay to feel that, that tension. He called that distinction out as well. You are called to your earthly family, but you are also called to your spiritual family and steward those relationships both well. And then finally, number two, for everyone here in the church, young Jesus, well, he stretched the ministry norms. We see just the first glimpse of it here. Maybe as he's asking the temple rabbi's questions. He begins to poke and prod in ways that will eventually lead to his persecution and death. This is the first example of Jesus kind of stretching the ministry envelope. And I'd, I'd like to think that sometimes, even in our culture today, we see that from those that are younger in us in generation. In fact, I'm going to ask anyone in the room, uh, you can if you're online, maybe watching at home, if you're under 18, I'm going to invite you to stand right now. If you're under 18, maybe you're an elementary school kid or junior high kid or a high school kid. And again, I'm not going to make you do anything weird, so don't, don't, don't worry. But I want some of those uh, students in our room to stand. Maybe you're a little one. You can even stand on a chair. It's okay, even in church. I'm going I'm to have everyone look around. Look around at these young future leaders. These leaders in our church these people that bring hope to us in our coming days. These are future teachers and leaders and elders and preachers and worship leaders and missionaries. This is the future of our church. I'll turn 40 next year, and whew, uh, let me tell you, I, I felt it a little bit. At times, I look around and I question ministry practices, and I go, why are they doing things like that at that church? That's not at all the way I used to. Oh, and I hear it. I hear it in my own life and my own leadership. But I hope we realize that if we don't design ministry in, in a way that connects with you and you and you and you and all of those standing here today, we as a church run the risk of being a local congregation that could simply die on the vine and fail to produce fruit. If you're like me, sometimes you feel that tension. Think of 12-year-old Jesus asking and prodding those questions. And I pray that we never become a church like that that forgets about this next generation. I pray that all of you standing, in fact, feel that venture is your church because you are our future. You are our future. I'm going to invite the rest of you to stand with them now, and I'm going to pray a prayer, a blessing over us as a church as we finish this new year. And as we see these themes of obedience, of calling, and Jesus' boyhood home, and his coming-of-age story, I feel like this epilogue points us to a bright future. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the truth found in today's passage. Thank you for the promise of adolescence, their questions and their energy and their ideas, and help us as a church to lean into those. Help us to apply wisdom and truth 
to our lives, regardless of whatever age we may be. God, we know that we're never too young to think theologically. God, we're never too old to grow in our faith either. And may you challenge us in that, especially as we end a year and turn the page on a new year. God, as people will come and go and the weary and old might die and leave us. God, we, we mourn that loss, but God, we know there's a new generation. And I pray that we can continue to lean in, to pray, to encourage and to support in ways that brings hope and life to your church. God, we love you for the opportunity to worship today. We lift all these things up to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.